0: We are about to start Acts 22. And let me set the table for you on where we are. As you know, uh, our brother Paul has been led by the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem, despite the fact that everybody has told him, don't go. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be punished. This is going to be a horrible trip. Uh, And even when Agabus the prophet came and and had took Paul's belt and tied his hands up and said, the owner of this belt will be tied like this with chains. Uh, it didn't matter to Paul because Paul had the vision of Jesus. And when we have the vision of Jesus, these other things really don't matter because we see the goal. And that's what he did. He saw the goal. He knew what his call was. And so it was that goal that he saw that led him to say, it doesn't matter about these earthly temptations, about what I will suffer. And that's my prayer for you, that each of you in some way come to terms with this. And so he goes down to the Jerusalem church, he tells them, he tells them everything that God had done on his trip. And remember, there was a always, there's this issue in the Jerusalem church. And that issue is the Jewish believers. Versus the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers really always still had uh, uh, feelings of enmity towards the Christian believers that never really went away, despite the fact that there's a, a number of teachings about this. And so what they say to Paul at the end of his presentation is, that's very good, brother. It's good that you've gone throughout the world. Now, you know, we have a number of zealous believers in the law in our church, and they don't really trust you. You need to show them that you're really a good Jew. And in order to be a good Jew, we want you to go to the uh, temple and we want you to participate in these purification rites. It was called the Nazarite vow. And we have four brothers that we want to go, we want to send with you. We'd like you to pay for their purification rites and for you to do it with them. Now, we studied last week how Paul said, I will be whatever I have to be to bring people to Jesus Christ. So you know better than anybody in this class what Paul thought of the law. He understood that Jesus superseded the law. The new covenant superseded the old covenant. It is a much greater sense of grace. Uh, And uh, as my Jewish lawyer tenant, devout Orthodox Jew, said to me, you know, the difference between you and me, John, is you have grace. And I was speechless. I was speechless because he understood it. He didn't, he didn't take the step, but he understood it. And so, that's right. We have grace. We have grace. And so Paul, because Paul wanted to keep the church together, he wanted the, the, the church not to have these issues. He wanted to promote unity. He, he went to the synagogue. He partook in these rites, and he paid for the rights of these other men. Uh, and uh, at the end of the week, when the rites were over, non-believing Jews, meaning non-Christian Jews, who saw him there and knew of him, and always knew that he, had, he was surrounded by Gentiles. They knew that about him. They knew what his work was, and they saw Gentiles with him at various points in Jerusalem, started a riot in Jerusalem at the temple because they claimed that Paul had brought Gentiles into the inner court of the temple. And here's the problem. If you went into the inner court of the temple Outside of it was the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles were allowed to be. But if you proceeded into the inner court, there was a sign that said, if you are a Gentile and you have come into this court, into this area of the temple, you are subject to immediate execution. It's pretty serious. And they had the authority under Roman law to say that, because the Romans had basically designated them as their area to patrol. So they assumed that Paul had brought Gentiles into that area. They hated him. They reviled him, and a riot ensues. And not a riot with one or two people, but as I read it, hundreds of people come down there. And this isn't just a verbal assault. They want to kill him. And you will see that in the language. And you just stand in amazement as as month after month, after year after year, wherever this man goes, as great as God uses him to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the uh, recalcitrant Jews despise him and hate him and want to kill him and will try in so many different ways. And so the riot ensues. The Roman commanders send the soldiers. They come there. They bring a, a phalanx around him. They actually pick him up and carry him away. And so now he's being quizzed. And he tells the Roman commander, if you just let me speak to them, I can get them to calm down. The guy never quits. He never stops. Just like in Ephesus when they had the 25,000 screaming in the temple and the stadium. And he said, let me go into the temple and the stadium. I can quiet them down. And they said to him, what are you, nuts? You can't do this. Well, here the Roman commander said, fine, you want to try to calm them down? I'll let you speak. And so I want you to get a sense of the context of where you are. Because when we study the Bible, it's, a lot of it is about context, context, context. Who is speaking? Under what conditions? Who is the audience? What are the conditions of the audience? You need to know all of this in order to properly study the Bible. And so I've set this all up for you. You have the pretext. And so now turn to Acts 22 verse 1 and imagine if you were standing there in front of a thousand people that hated you and wanted to kill you and were screaming and rioting as you got up to speak brothers and fathers listen now to my defense I am touched frankly I'm touched by a man who who could look at this surly, angry mob and use the language, brothers and fathers. I thought to myself, John, what would you do if you you had that moment? Here's basically how I would say, you bunch of loser rebels. God should destroy you. We've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for years, and year after year, you recalcitrant mobsters refuse to accept him. I'm praying that he wipes you out at this moment. That would be me. You would not have any epistles in the New Testament from me. It would be a short moment in history, all right, as they crucified me and took me away. But this brother, it doesn't matter. He can stand up. And you know what you understand? You see the Holy Spirit. Because when I read this, this uh, speech in this sermon, It strikes me like Stephen. When Stephen was there in front of the Sanhedrin and he gave that sermon in which he tied the whole Old Testament together into the coming of Jesus Christ, only the Holy Spirit does that. These are angry, howling, killing mobs. and You need to understand what the power of the Holy Spirit can do for you when you need it. What grace means. When we say grace, this is Grace. Grace. In faith, grace, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. He spoke to them in their own language. And so suddenly, when many of them had never heard him before, now they realized, well, they heard about him. They knew who he was. They reviled him, but he's going to speak to us in our tongue. All right, we'll listen to him for a while. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He is now giving them his bona fides. Brothers and fathers, I am a Jew. I'm a zealous Jew. I'm a Jew's Jew. I want you to understand what you're dealing with me. I was zealous for the law, and not only was I born a Jew, but I came here to Jerusalem and I was trained, and look who I trained under, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was considered the highest of the high of the teachers. Nobody had was revered greater than Gamaliel. And so I was trained in the law of our fathers and was zealous for God, as much as God as you are of today. Verse 41, verse 4, excuse me. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. You now have his confession. Now you're hearing him tell you in his own words what he did. He didn't just persecute men. He persecuted men and women. you understand how serious this is? Defenseless women who were going along to worship He persecuted them, and he threw both men and women into prison because he was zealous for the law. As also, verse 5, as also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. In other words, I was so zealous, I wasn't even content to stay here in Jerusalem. Because I knew they had followers in Damascus. And even though that's a 200-mile trip over a desert road that would take me five days to get there, it didn't matter. I had letters from the uh, high priest allowing me to go there to arrest these followers, men and women, to haul them back and to put them into prison. Okay, you want to know how zealous I was? I was a Jew's Jew. Verse 6. About noon, and now you're going to hear the greatest the greatest experience of evangelization, the greatest testimony of coming to the Lord, probably in the history of Christianity as he now talks about meeting Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. About noon. As I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light flashed, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. One of the most valuable possessions that I own is a painting, an oil painting, entitled The Confession uh, of uh, Saul. Uh, And it's a picture of Saul on the road to Damascus. It's painted by a Flemish painter in the 1600s, a guy by the name of Johann Kuyp. And I had this painting about 25 years ago, somebody I knew knew that that this would be very meaningful to my life, and it has been. And it's a, a painting that you would see in a museum, it's 400 years old, and it shows men in Middle Eastern garb traveling on horseback, and suddenly you see a beam of light striking this one man down, and not only does it strike him down, it strikes the horse down. He's, he has his arm up like this to shield the light from coming into his eyes. It's interesting because when they painted him, they painted him as bald. And we know from our other readings that he saw, uh, Saul, Paul, was bald doing this. And it shows the other people in the caravan cowering away but away some distance as this light was like a laser that came down directly to him. This was Jesus Christ going one-on-one with the man who would write two-thirds of the New Testament. This is one of those extraordinary moments in our Bible history where the theology of the church for our New Testament church is laid out and this is the man that God chose to do it. And could you pick a worse candidate based on his resume? Could you pick anybody worse? Can you imagine if you were God and you were picking who would be the guy? What, are you kidding me? This guy? But it shows you how God sees the whole picture and recognize that this guy, because of his zealousness, because of his background, would be the consummate missionary the consummate evangelist, who would give it all, that just as zealous as he was when he, when he pursued the Christians, when he came to, to Christ, that it would be like a switch would be turned off. And he would immediately, immediately come to understanding what his role was. And so I want you to think about this and think also of the fact that this moment took place at noon, noon in the desert, okay? You think it's bright? You think it's bright? And think about this, the light that came down to him and struck him must have been like a thousand suns as it came down in a beam and hit him only. Because it says that the other people there saw the light but were not blinded. So it would be as if Dan was there watching the light hit me like a spotlight, sees that it's light but is unaffected by the light as the light strikes me off the horse, puts me on the ground, and now Jesus begins to speak to me. And no one else can understand the words. They hear the sounds, but they can't understand the words. This is a one-on-one evangelical moment where he is being called to the stage. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Oh, God. Can you just imagine that moment? Can you imagine what that had to be like? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's as if Jesus took a sword and plunged it through his heart because he knew instantaneously when he heard, why do you persecute me? He understood who he was talking to. He knew he was talking to Jesus. He understood that as he's lying there blinded by the light. And Jesus appears to him and speaks to him. And so it says in verse 8, Who are you, Lord? I asked. And I really think the question, the way it ought to be said is I know who you are. I know who you are. Lord, what is it? you want of me. You can just see this moment transpire. And Jesus responds, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. This is the Lord calling the 12th apostle, one-on-one, One-on-one, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine when they heard those words? How he thought back over his life over the years. He knew who Jesus was. He saw Jesus. He was in Jerusalem at that time. And how he had spent his life persecuting, imprisoning, punishing. And now the very essence of his life is rendered moot. It's a shamble. It's a fraud. Everything that he did as, as he thought it in a religious way, is now lying at his feet as if it's debris, because he understands now Jesus is speaking to him directly. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? Now, as I prayed over this and studied this, this the, the point that came to me and, and was this. If you want to know when Paul was saved, when, did he, when was he saved? When did he understand when he's saved? When did he, it all come together? Did it come together three days later in the house on Joshua Street when Ananias comes and prays for him? When the blindness comes over his eyes? Or was it right now? Was it now when he's standing face to face with Jesus And he's saying, what shall I do, Lord? I am convinced in my heart, this is the moment. This is when he's saved. He's saved now. What shall I do, Lord? That word is so pregnant and full of meaning. In other words, Jesus, your Lord, what shall I do? What will you have me be? Where will I go? What do you want me to be? Can you see all this going on? All this going on instantaneously at this moment. This is such an incredible picture because now you're having him tell you the story. Acts 9, Luke told the story. Now, this is, his, this is his personal testimony. And what does the Lord say? Verse 10, get up. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do, assigned to do, and it's amazing how the Lord Jesus works. He, the Lord Jesus still gives to man a role to deliver the gospel, the message of salvation to man, and it's as if the very good analogy here is Cornelius, because the angel appeared to Cornelius and said to Cornelius, you are a righteous man. And in the sight of God, God looks at you with favor. But go and ask for Peter to come here. The angel didn't deliver the message of salvation. Go and ask for Peter. And so now, here you have Paul, who has just met Jesus face to face. Just met Jesus face to face. And now after Jesus says to him, you will hear what I have assigned for you, you know, some of us would say, "Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus! What is this? You just, you just knocked me off this horse. You came and spoke to me personally. Nobody, nobody else has this happened to. I'm the only one. There's nobody else. I have. And now, after you're doing this to me, I got to go in and be led by the hand in blindness." To a house I've never been been there? And wait? Yes. Yes. You have to wait. And here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. And it followed him all his life. Because even when he was called to this greatest ministry, this greatest moment, uh, when he was up to the point where God has selected him, the man who will write two-thirds of the New Testament, the man who will effectively flesh out the theology of Jesus Christ, who will give us the doctrines that we understand through the Holy Spirit. With all that, when he was back to Jerusalem, he was too hot to handle. Too hot to handle. And so the church sent him packing, and we're going to read this later. The church sent him packing, go back, go back to Tarsus. And so he goes back to Tarsus, and he spends about nine to ten years in Tarsus in complete anonymity, cut off from the church, We don't know a thing about what went on there. Nothing. But can you imagine a guy who was called like this, brought brought to the gospel by Jesus himself, and then told you go there, we'll call you when we want you. Can you imagine? It defies how human beings would act, or what we would want. It's everything opposite to what we would expect. But you know what? And there's a lesson for you here. God is is calling each and every one of you, but in some way that you may not understand. And for many of us, it means waiting. Not yet, not now. Serving him, quietly, in our own tarsus, in our own way, waiting for him to call us to the specific call in our life. And who knows, who knows how he sands us down, how he comes and meets with us, and deals with us. I am convinced that those nine years in Tarsus where he probably lived in isolation, can you imagine? It was not a homecoming. Going back to where I was raised, and now telling everybody, you remember the Jew who was a Pharisee who studied under Gamaliel? Yeah, I'm a Christian now. They they didn't have a band. They didn't have a band. He was cut off, I'm sure. But only God understands what that's about. Only God understands what that is, how he reflected about where where he was and what he has done. And so it's an incredible story, really an incredible story. And so the Lord says, get up, get up, the Lord said, go into Damascus, there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Notice, blinded me, not them. Just him. Him alone. We understand lasers today, so we can understand how this can happen. How you could stand right next to someone, and if the laser light is on them, you would be unaffected. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. You can underline that. Devout observer of the law. Meaning, we didn't know this about Ananias before, we just thought he was a a good Christian that God called, but no, obviously, he was a Jew's Jew as well. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. So, he was a Christian, but he was also a devout Jew. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. Brother Saul, you have met Jesus one-on-one. Jesus has called you one-on-one. Jesus has given you his assignment. Uh, and pretty, pretty big words. Uh, and so continuing on. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. You will be his witness to all men. We know in Acts chapter 9, it goes further. Now he's cutting this down. He's, he's trimming his testimony because he's speaking to an angry mob of Jews. Because we know in Acts chapter 9, it said, you will be called to kings and princes and leaders of the world. And the gentiles you will speak to the highest of the high. All right? He doesn't say this about himself here. All he says is you will go and speak to all men. You will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16. Let's see where would we leave off. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Wash your sins away, calling out his name. Amen. So now we have the the uh, paradigm of how we uh, operate as a church. You accept Jesus Christ. You acknowledge him with your lips. You accept it in your heart. You repent. And then after you have repentance through, through Jesus Christ, Then you get baptized in water and your baptism is not salvation. Your your salvation precedes your baptism. You are saved by Jesus Christ, but your baptism, which follows your confession and acceptance of Jesus Christ, is your announcement and testimony to the world that you are with Jesus and that you are buried in his Uh, uh, crucifixion and our part and living in his resurrection and that's exactly what he did exactly what we do and follow to this day and so continuing on verse 17 when i returned to jerusalem now he's left some things out here he didn't tell them about the couple of years he spent in the desert remember that he went to the desert again one-on-one out in the desert that was probably two years he doesn't tell them about that he says now and then when he came back he preached in Damascus for a while do you remember doesn't tell you that because in Damascus he basically got thrown out of Damascus they had to put him down in a basket remember that and then he went to Jerusalem he's just taking up now when I went to Jerusalem so he's cut out a couple years again because he's dealing with an angry howling mob For this purpose, this is what they need to know. Again, context, context, context. And he said, continuing on, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. This guy is amazing. This is where Jesus appears and speaks to him regularly. And you will see that. And Jesus spoke to him uh, as he was there in, in this trance. Uh, and saw the Lord speaking, quick, Jesus said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, I love this, because this is typical Paul. Jesus tells you, get up and go now. They won't accept your testimony. What does Paul do? Ah, Jesus, wait a minute, come on. You haven't thought about it. Just think about it. Think how great it's going to be when they look at me, the guy who persecuted them. They remember me. They know me. Come on. They know where I'm from. They're going to be so astonished that me, me, I am now a Christian. This is going to be a great moment for the church. You're making a big mistake if you tell me to leave now. Well, what he's left out here is that the other brothers in the church at the same time, said to him, "You got to go, you got to leave. We can't have you here. You're too hot to handle. You're bringing a lot of heat on us. We're getting persecuted because of you. We want you out. Go back to Tarsus. We'll call you. Don't call us. We'll let you know when we want you to come back." And so, I mean, it's interesting. And he and he goes on and he and I love this relationship where he's basically now arguing with with God. Verse 19. Lord, I replied. These men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Folks, if you ever wanted to know what his relationship was and his culpability was in Stephen's death, there you have it. You have an eyewitness confession. He's confessing to his involvement in Stephen's death. Not only was he part of the approval process, but he says, I stood there, and as the various killers threw the stones to kill Stephen, I took charge of their clothing and guarded their clothing. Why? So that they would be unrestricted in their ability to hurl stones and kill them. That's what it is. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is awful. This is awful. This is awful. Then the Lord said to me, go. In other words, that's nice. I'd like to hear your opinions. Now go. That's what God says to us, you know? It's like we pray and pray and pray, oh, God, I wanted this. Please do this. Please do that. And, you know, we don't, we don't understand that, you know, 50% of the time the answer is no. It's no. Go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Wow. Kill him. Now. Now. Don't let him breathe another hour. Murder him. Stop him. Now. Now, I'm convinced that this was a moment of judgment On the Jewish people as a nation and as a people and I'm convinced that uh, it's at this point I believe where we're gonna read what Paul thinks of how God handles this because they had been continually given the chance to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ innumerable times and now again this last time where he's laying it all out for them in eyewitness fashion he's telling them exactly what happened And let's see what he then says in his own words in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Verse 25. And this would be good for you if you get some chance to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. They stand out in Romans. Romans 9 how God dealt with Jews in the past. Romans 10, how God was dealing with the Jewish people in the present. Romans 11, how God would deal with the Jews in the future. And so now, this is what we're on. What happens? What's the consequence of this act? Kill him now. Rid him. Rid this person. Stop him. Stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from being advanced. Well, let's see. Romans 11, verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Do you understand what that is? In other words, God says this at some point there's a judgment. We don't want to hear the gospel. We want the gospel messengers to be murdered. We've had it. We don't want anything to do with it. And the more you bring, the more we don't want it. And we'll murder anybody that comes this way and we'll stop it. We're not interested in it as an, at all. This is an institutional statement. There's always the grace of God for individual Jews who see the light of the gospel and come to, God, to Christ. But as a people... As a culture, as a nation, they have rejected him. And so what happens? A hardening takes place, meaning God says this. That's what you want? That's what you want? You'll get it. I'll harden your heart so that you cannot, you will not, as a people, as a nation, as a culture, you will not accept Jesus as your Savior. And we've seen it before. There's other instances of hardening in the the Bible. Look at Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? Remember? Remember? When he saw all those plagues, and finally God said, I'm hardening your heart. It won't matter what happens. You will not be able to turn your change your mind. And God used that as an evangelistic moment. And so what happens here? Look at this. I mean, it's pretty serious. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Do you know most probably, according to Bible scholars, when that moment will be? The full number of the Gentiles coming in The rapture. The rapture. When the rapture comes, God takes out of this earth his church. At that moment in time, the full number of the Gentiles will have come in. And it will be at that moment afterwards that Israel, the hardening will come off of of Israel as a corporate people, as a nation, as a culture. And you're going to see what happens. And this is important because this is part of this lesson. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. Does that mean every single individual Jew? No. It means as a people, as a country, as a nation, as a culture, they will will come to Jesus Christ. There still will be individual recalcitrant Jews who will not be. And, uh, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, God is true to his covenant. God is true to his promises. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The deliverer, the savior, the Messiah will come out and will save the Jewish people. That's the promise, and we know that God did that. We know that Jesus himself dealt specifically with the Jewish people first, even when he first sent out the uh, the disciples. Do you remember the first 70? You remember what he said to them when they went out? What did he tell them to do? Go to Jews only. Don't go to the whole world. Go to Jews only. Deliver it to the sons of Israel. In other words, the Jewish people had the covenant they had the promise. They were the promised people. And God, time after time after time, delivers on his promise. But then there's a point of judgment. And you're now seeing the consequence of that judgment. Where there stops, a judgment comes in. And so this is what we see. But God does not abandon his promise. And this is something for us to know. This is key. God does not abandon his promise. And his promise was, that he would still come and save the Jewish people. And they will have their chance. They will have their chance. But now, as a people, as a nation, there's a partial hardening. And so, verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. till he said that. We could have listened to you until you said this, meaning I will go to the Gentiles. There's nothing that you could say that irritates us more. You going to the Gentiles. You taking our law, our God, our teachings, our covenant, you, and dragging it to them dogs, those dogs. That just drives us nuts. And so we have to kill you. They raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Is that strong enough for you? As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting of him like this. Imagine, this poor guy didn't even understand what this was about. He didn't realize he had stepped right into the middle of a stage of a major theological discussion. This guy's just a soldier, and he's seeing a thousand people want to kill this guy and didn't understand the very cosmic effect of the theology that was going on and how Satan had co-opted, really. Satan had co-opted these Jewish people. And so he didn't understand it. And they stretched him out to beat him. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? (laughs) I love that statement. (laughs) By the way, uh, I know you have the whips out and I'm about, But is, it, uh, is that legally right that you can do this to a Roman citizen? A Roman citizen? What, are you kidding me? You couldn't possibly do that. You couldn't touch a Roman citizen without a trial. He had to have a trial. And you will see how God uses his citizenship, Paul's Roman citizenship, how he uses this as the pretext to take him from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Because he was a Roman citizen. Because he had the right to have a trial. And God used man's laws for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an important moment. We're going to end the class at this point. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you've been here in our class, that you've taught us these words. Lord, I ask you that these words grow in our heart as we apply them in our life throughout this week. I ask you also, Lord, that you put a wall of protection around every one of these dear people and to bring them back safely to continue the study of the word. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.